You may have noticed a phrase that was repeated uh, three times throughout our passage, and it's the phrase that uh, faith, or some form of it, uh, faith without works is dead. Verse 17, he says, thus also, uh, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 20, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Verse 26, he concludes, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. It's like he's trying to communicate something to us uh, by saying the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, for my sermon title, I've decided to put it in a positive uh, way as opposed to in the negative that uh, James brings to us. Uh, the sermon title this morning is Genuine Faith Results in Good Works. Genuine Faith Results in Good Works. And we see that uh, happen in a variety of ways, but... Um, First, to understand how faith or a statement of faith can result in or can not result in works. Uh, Verses 14 through 17, he shows us, uh, he he makes it plain to us that the profession uh, profession of faith without the practice of faith is, is pointless. It doesn't profit anybody. The profession of faith without the practice of faith uh, brings no profit. Notice uh, the the questions that he asks and the conclusion that he draws in verses 14 through 17. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus, also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so he begins uh, with three questions and a conclusion. And the first and last question are the same question. And the middle one is kind of a very condensed version of the two. But they're a question of profit. What does it profit, he he asks there in verse uh, 14. And then again, uh, with the, the illustration he gives, he concludes that question, what does it profit? What benefit does it actually bring is what he's, he's drawing to. Uh, and so from uh, last week's study, we concluded that our faith actually benefits those around us. That when we're doing the things that God tells us to do and we're living the way that God wants us to, it will bring a blessing not only to ourselves, but it'll be a blessing to everyone around us. And here he's making the same point, but in reverse, that if there is no actual faith, uh, if there's no works associated with that faith, uh, then it's not going to actually be beneficial to anybody. Uh, the point uh, he makes clear in the illustration that he gives, uh, again, drawing on uh, the picture of a poor person amongst them as a fellowship and how they would view them. Uh, remember last week we were discussing the poor being slighted and favoritism being shown toward the wealthy. And now he, he seems to draw again on that same illustration of the poor man among them, uh, and, and again, another wrong way in which to relate to them. Uh, he asked the question, does it profit if you just say to somebody who is cold, somebody who is hungry, be warmed and filled? Does that actually warm them and fill them? Do those words all by themselves change anything? And he's like, no. <laughs> the words by themselves are unhelpful. Uh, and in, at, at unhelpful at best, and at worst, 
they almost seem to be mocking the situation because it'd be one thing if you didn't know somebody was cold and hungry, but it's another thing if you're acknowledging it with your words but then doing nothing about it. Uh, John in 1 John uh, kind of addresses a similar situation. Uh, John writes in 1 John three seventeen, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? And John here is putting uh, the same profession of faith uh, or the profession of, I have the love of God and I know the love of God. And he's like, if you have it and you're not showing it, are you sure that you have it? Because it's not, it's not coming out of your life. If it's in your life, it should be coming out of your life. And he's saying, how can the love of God abide in you if it's not being expressed through you, specifically when you're in a position to express that love of God, right? He, he describes a place where that was, would be possible. He says the person who has goods and he sees somebody who is in need of those goods, he's like, there, there ought to be an expression of God's love in the, the transfer of those things. Uh, but he's, he's talking about the disposition of the heart. The disposition of the heart is compassion, seeing somebody in need and having compassion on them and giving them to the, giving them the things that they do need. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us that we should give anything and everything to anyone who asks for anything, for whatever the need is. The Bible doesn't say to be undiscerning in how we go about giving those good gifts. Uh, in Paul encouraging the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, he tells them to use great discernment when it comes to giving out money and giving out uh, things that are necessary, uh, even for... Uh, being warmed and filled, he, he says, uh, Paul writes in Second Thessalonians 3.10, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. There were those who were uh, telling the church that they should you know, feed them and clothe them and house them, uh, not because they couldn't do those things on their own, but because they didn't want to do them. And uh, Paul was like, no, <laughs> this is not church-sponsored laziness. Uh, and so there, there's a, a giving of good things uh, that requires discernment. Uh, this same discernment is required of every parent. Uh, your kids, if you're a parent, will sometimes de desire good things from you, like dessert before dinner. And you have to be discerning in that moment. Uh, if my kids are asking me for dessert before dinner, and my wife is, you know, putting together a wonderful dinner, uh, and she's, you know, putting all her heart and soul into it, if I feed them snacks or dessert right before that dinner, that's unwise for me as the husband. <laughs> And not good for the kids either, right? Because what they're asking for, they think is good for them, and they think they need, and they think they want, but it's not what's good for them. It's not what they need. And not every person in need needs what they're saying they need. And we need to be discerning with regard to that. But the disposition of our heart with regard to it ought to be compassion. Uh, but how we actually work that out and practice ought to be with discernment. Uh, you can aid somebody in their disobedience to the Lord. Uh, in studying for this, I, uh, a pastor gave an illustration of a, a guy who was in his church uh, passing out letters, you know, hey, I need help paying my, my utility bills and you know, paying my mortgage and all of these things, but he had been spending all of his money on, on prostitution. And I was like, no, the church will not, <laughs> the church not sponsoring that. That would be unwise and undiscerning. And so he gives here in this illustration Two things: an admonition to us uh, that if the 
if God's love is in our heart, it's going to be expressed in tangible and practical ways. Um, but the illustration isn't necessarily with regard to that. It's with regard to the effectiveness of our words by themselves. You know, when God created everything, he spoke things into existence. Uh, we can't do that. <laughs> One of those attributes that God has that we do not have. God can speak things into existence. God could tell somebody to be warmed and filled, and they could be warmed and filled in that moment because he has the ability to do that. We don't have that ability. If we're going to tell somebody to be warmed and filled, it needs to be accompanied with actions. And in the same way, what James is making uh, as a point here is that just saying the words, I have faith, doesn't actually mean that you have faith. Just like just saying to somebody, be warmed and filled, doesn't actually warm and fill them there can be a false profession of faith. And he's not telling us that to warn us from each other. He's telling us that to warn us from ourselves and warning us from making a false profession of faith, that we would be aware of it. And one of the red flags that would be popping up is that we're making the profession of faith, but there is never any acts of faith that follow it. Notice that this is exactly the state of this person that he's describing here. Verse 14, he says, if someone says he has faith, this isn't a person who actually has faith. This is a person who actually says they have faith. Verse 16, if one of you says, Jesus warned of this kind of thing uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. I uh, have been encouraging us as we've been studying through. If you're doing the read ahead, I encourage you to also read alongside the read ahead, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 5 through the end of chapter 7. Uh, Jesus tells us what it's like to live in the kingdom of God, what to expect, uh, what we ought to do, what, what is the standard in God's kingdom. And James here uh, draws on a theme, I think, uh, that Jesus makes clear in Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 21 through 23. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Sound familiar? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, even though there was the right profession, uh, you can't be saved uh, without calling Jesus Lord. But here, Jesus describes somebody who calls Jesus Lord with their words, but their heart is far from him. And they would even go so far as to point to actions. Lord, didn't I do this in your name? Didn't I do this in your name? Uh, but the key thing that was missing was a relationship with God. Right? Jesus doesn't say at the end of that, uh, you didn't do any of those works. That's not the argument. He says, I never knew you. The relationship comes first. The good works come second. Uh, I've given the illustration before. It'd be like if, uh, I'll use an old illustration, uh, when I worked at Lowe's, and if you came to Lowe's and you put on, you know, found a red vest, you put it on, you started helping customers, finding products, and, you know, doing all of the things that a Lowe's employee should do, and then when payday came, you didn't get a paycheck. And you're like, but didn't I help customers in the name of Lowe's? Didn't I help, you know, provide excellent customer service in the name of Lowe's? 
And Lowe's will be like, I never knew you. <laughs> Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Right? There's no, there was no relationship as the basis of the works. But in the same way, if you were hired at Lowe's, or you claim to be hired at Lowe's, but I never saw you working at Lowe's. Not, you, you never left your house at any time. You never came back from work after working a hard day. And I'm like, are you sure you work at Lowe's? I mean, you, 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 you claim to work at Lowe's. There's a profession of employment, but there's no acts of employment. <laughs> I got up really early this morning to go to work because I, I work at CVS and there was work that needed to be done. That's an act of employment. Uh, if they had not employed me, I would have not gotten up that early. <laughs> I would have not gone there. I would have not done the work. But because I work there, I get up and I go to work when I would rather be in bed. And, and sometimes I stay later instead of coming home early because I, I'm working there. Because the, the claim to employment has acts of employment in the same way that the claim to faith has acts of faith that are in conjunction to it. But just because you're doing good deeds in the name of the Lord doesn't mean that there's a relationship with the Lord there. Or it doesn't even gain you a relationship to the Lord. Again, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. And here, James saying, not everybody who says they have faith actually has it. There's no acts of faith, and that, that should be a red flag to us. Uh, there's a, the middle question I want to address here briefly, because uh, it would seem, uh, if you know your scriptures, to, to make you want to ask a question. The, the middle question that he asked there at the end of verse 14, can faith save him? Now, if you took that question all by itself, I would give you a different answer than in the context. Can faith save you? The answer is yes. In this context, the answer is no, <laughs> because he, he's qualifying the faith that he's talking about. If you have any other version of the Bible besides the New King James, it actually indicates that and how it phrases that question. In the New King James, it, it says, can faith save him? In almost every other translation, it, it translates it this way, can this kind of faith save him? That is, the faith that says but does not do. Can, there, can this kind of faith a faith that's a profession without a practice, can that kind of faith save him? And in our context, the answer is no. We do know that Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, by uh, grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We're, we're not saved by our works. And yet, there are works associated with it. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 goes on to Ephesians 10, which is not surprising if you know your number line. Uh, verse 10, it says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So the order of good works in relationship to our salvation is subsequent. It comes after. We have faith, and then good works follow. I get a job. I get up early. <laughs> the good works follow. It, it's the natural order. Uh, we aren't saved by our good works, uh, but good works will flow out of the life of somebody who is saved. Once we're saved, we can start doing good works. Once I get hired, I can start getting paid for the work I do. It's not surprising. <laughs> I like uh, R.C. Sprawl's commentary on this particular point uh, of Scripture. He writes, uh, James is saying, not that man is justified before God by his works, but that his claim to faith is shown to be genuine 
as he demonstrates the evidence of that claim of faith through his works. And so we can have confidence in our own faith when we see that it's associated with obedience to what God says. When we know what God says and we're walking in obedience to that, uh, we mentioned this a few weeks ago in looking at God's word, we examine God's word and then we look at our life, we examine God's word and we look at our life, then we examine God's word and, we, and, we, and we're seeing it come into alignment to it. It's never going to be perfect, but it's always going to be the tool by which God uses to correct us is his word, uh, the standard by which we know we're going to be in the right place. And so it begins with, the word, uh, with a, a right knowledge of God's word, but it doesn't end there. But that right knowledge of God uh, sometimes falsely gives some confidence that because they have sound theology, that they're good with God. Just because they, they know um, terms like soteriology and harmartiology, like these are big theological words. But uh, the second point I believe he makes, and the second point in my sermon, is that uh, the profession of sound theology may still result in a dead faith. The profession of sound theology may still result in a dead faith. Notice what he writes next in verses 18 through 20. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? He creates here an argument, if you would, uh, a pretend argument between himself and somebody who would argue with the points that he's trying to make. And he's like, you have faith and I have works. I will show you my faith with, you know, you show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And he's, he's trying to drive home the point that the two are inextricably combined. Uh, and then he makes this point, verse 19, you believe there is one God, you do well. Sound theology is good. Sound theology by itself is bad. <laughs> Sound theology is good. Sound theology by itself is bad. Uh, it being good, he, he states clearly there at the beginning of verse 19, you say that there is one God, you do well. That's sound theology. If you can say that there is one God, the Bible says the same thing. That's sound theology. It's a complete theology. That's a right theological understanding. The Bible says the same thing as what you're saying in that moment. But sound theology by itself has, has a relationship to uh, not people who are necessarily always in a right relationship with God. He points to, as his counterexample, even the demons believe and tremble. Demons have a sound theology. <laughs> Their understanding of God is correct. There's not one agnostic or atheist uh, demon out there. <laughs> right? I was going to give you a pop quiz this morning of who was the first person to say to Jesus, uh, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It wasn't Peter. It was a man who was possessed by a demon that Jesus was casting out. Luke chapter uh, for shortly after Jesus is baptized and uh, starting off his ministry, before he even calls Peter and his brother to come follow after him, we're told in Luke 4, verse 31, uh, that uh, demons came out of many, crying and saying, you are the Christ, the Son of God. 
And he rebuked them and did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. Sound theology. In fact, their theology was ahead of the disciples. <laughs> Before the disciples knew that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, the demons knew. And yet, that didn't help them at all in the relationship with the Lord. That didn't make them at all any more obedient to the Lord. Sound theology is good and necessary for a good walk with the Lord. You need to know what the Lord is like and what he desires in order to, to be like him and to do the things that he's commanded you. But just knowing can provide a false sense of security. And James, in writing these things, is trying to rattle the cage a, a, a bit and saying, I know that you know these things, and you do well to know them. Don't not know them. <laughs> Continue to know them. Get to know them better, but don't just know them. It's not what you know, but how you put what you know into practice that's important. James is going to exhort us later on in chapter 4, verse 17. He says, uh, To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Which means if you're, you're growing in knowledge, but you're not growing in obedience, then you're growing in sin. If you're growing in knowledge without growing also in obedience, then you're growing in sin. And that's, that's not a safe place to be. We teach the Bible here, you can grow in knowledge. <laughs> we hope that you grow in knowledge. But the hope isn't that you would just leave this place with lots of knowledge. The hope is that you would leave this place with a knowledge that will help you live a life of obedience to the Lord. That's the hope. The, the goal of uh, every follower of Christ who's been commissioned by Christ to make disciples of everyone else around them is to help people grow spiritually, to take that next step of obedience, not just to know the next step of obedience, but to actually take the next step of obedience. And sometimes uh, we like to pull these things apart. There's a, a quote I came across in studying uh, that I think was very applicable to this. Uh, St. Augustine wrote in the, his, his book, The City of God, if you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the Gospels you believe, but yourself. And we can't just pick and choose what we like. and like, oh, I know that's what it says, but I don't like what that means for me, so I'm not going to listen to that. We're not, we're not believing God's word anymore. We're, we're believing <laughs> in ourselves. We've put ourselves in, in the place that only God belongs He concludes this section uh, with a phrase that uh, normally is condemned in Scripture. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, don't, don't call your brother a fool. And then we read here in James, <laughs> verse 20, but do you want to know, O foolish man? He's not calling the people out there foolish men. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God, but here... The, the fool is foolish uh, because of what, uh, how, how Scripture describes a fool. A fool in Scripture, according to the book of Proverbs, isn't somebody who's ignorant. Uh, typically, an ignorant person is called 
uh, a simple man, uh, or sometimes a young man. <laughs> a fool in scripture isn't someone uh, who needs correction. A fool in scripture is someone who refuses correction. We all need correction. Uh, again, the book of Proverbs tells us that what makes a wise man wise and a foolish person foolish, the wise person is wise because they receive correction. <laughs> it's not that they don't need correction, as they receive it. A foolish person is foolish not because they don't ever get it, it's because they don't ever receive the correction. And here I think James is drawing on those lines when he's talking to this person, when he says, do you want to know Oh, foolish man. The foolish man doesn't want to know. The foolish man would rather not know that what he knows needs to be translated into what he does. The foolish man is uncorrected by God's word. They may know God's word better than me, but that sound theology, if not translated into obedience to the Lord, is unhelpful. It's unhelpful to those around them, and it's unhelpful to them themselves. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 8, it says, Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Do you want to know if you're foolish or wise according to Scripture? Just wait till the next person corrects you. How do you respond? Do you love them? It's hard to do that. <laughs> it's hard to love somebody that's correcting you. He turns his corner again, and he, he points out something that if you've been reading through your scriptures uh, has become obvious, is that the, the faith that he's talking about is not just a New Testament faith. This isn't a new thing that he's talking about, that faith somehow uh, results in obedience is uh, something only associated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith has always, it has a history, a track record of resulting in works of faith. So genuine faith has always resulted in works of faith. And he gives us two Old Testament illustrations uh, to, as an example, show us what he means when he says faith will lead to or result in, a genuine faith will result in uh, works of faith. Uh, notice the genuine faith resulting in good works in the life of Abraham, uh, verses 21 through 23. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. When it says that Abraham was justified, that isn't he had justification before God in a legal sense, but that his faith was shown to be genuine. Abraham's Faith was shown to be genuine when he offered up his son Isaac. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the story, if I can encourage you to write down uh, some references here, Genesis chapter 22 cont contains the story where God tells Abraham, 
Take now your son, your only son, whom you love. That should sound familiar to those of us who know John 3.16. <laughs> and you know, offer him up as a sacrifice on the mountains which I'll show you. And those mountains ended up being the very mountains where Jesus would be crucified one day. And so in the same way that sometimes we put on plays and skits and uh, it's something smaller and significant of something bigger, Jesus was having Abraham take his son to be an offering on a mountain as a picture of something greater that would come later. But this son that was given was a son of promise. He had been waiting for this son for a very long time. If you're familiar with the scriptures, God gave him the promise to have a son at 75 years old. And 25 years later, he had the son. I'm not sure if I promised you something and then I gave it to you 25 years later, <laughs> how you would feel about that. <laughs> but maybe you'd hang on to that thing like, I've waited a long time for this. And now I've got it. And now God's like, I want you to give it back. <laughs> There's a commentary that I love on this section of scripture that's in another section of scripture. <laughs> uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19 is a commentary on this particular time in Abraham's life. Uh, Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. We're given in this next verse insight into what was going through Abraham's mind, uh, what was in his heart in this moment in time in his life when he was killing the son that God had promised to give him. This is what Abraham was thinking. Uh, Hebrews 11 Verse 19, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So Abraham believed in death and resurrection of an only begotten son because he was confident that what God had promised him, he was able to keep that promise, even if it meant raising his son from the dead. That's greater faith than the disciples had. They saw Jesus dead and they're like, well, it's over. <laughs> it's the end of the world as we know it. I guess we'll go back to fishing. This is now beyond God's ability to <laughs> do anything about. Abraham had greater faith. And it wasn't that he had faith in faith. He had faith in the promise that God had given him before he even had a son. And that promise was that his son would eventually produce the promised son, the savior of the world. And so he had great confidence in God to do what God said he would do, even when what he thought God was telling him to do was the opposite. <laughs> like, right? I thought this son was supposed to bring the Savior of the world. Why am I, why am I killing him? And nevertheless, I, I'm confident that if I have to go through with this, that God's going to raise him from the dead. And it proved a confidence in God that would have not been proved otherwise. It demonstrated faith that he had the whole time. The faith that he had the whole time was accounted to him as righteousness the moment he had it. The moment he had that faith before God, righteous. That's what we're told uh, here in uh, not just James, but Paul also quotes it in Romans chapter 4. Uh, Genesis 15, 6 is the passage. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him 
as righteousness. He didn't do anything. He just believed that God was going to do the thing. <laughs> and from that moment forward, he was righteous before the Lord. And that genuine faith was eventually tested, and it was eventually proved to be genuine faith. But it had works of faith that were in cooperation with and explained only by the faith that was in his heart. The faith that was in his heart became the faith that was evident to all around him. Notice the result of that, that this genuine faith resulted in. He was counted as a friend of God. He loved God. And the love of God was demonstrated in his life. Now, maybe if you were Isaac and being taken up to the mountain with firewood, he's like, I see the wood, I see the fire, but where's the sacrifice? <laughs> the Lord will provide himself a lamb for the offering was the response that he was given. And the Lord would one day provide a lamb for himself. Except this time the hand wouldn't be stayed. This time... God would need to raise him from the dead to keep the promise that he made. Genuine faith resulting in good works or works of faith is not new. It's as old as the father of faith. The father of faith <laughs> had works of faith. The faith came first and the works came second, but they were there. Genuine faith resulting in works of faith is for everyone. We get that point in the next person he chooses as his illustration. Notice who he chooses next. Uh, a lady by the name of Rahab. Verse 25. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Again, if you're unfamiliar with the story, if I can encourage you to write this reference down and read it later on today or sometime this week, uh, that story is found in Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 22, the first part of the story. And then the second part of the story is Joshua chapter 6, verses 17 through 25, uh, where the two parts of the story com come together. If you're unfamiliar with the story, there were, uh, Joshua had just been handed the mantle for Moses to take the children of Israel into the promised land. And one of the first places they come to is Jericho. And uh, Joshua's like, sends out spies to spy out the land to see what it's like. And these spies go into Jericho. And the spies, uh, they were taken notice of. The, the reputation of the Lord had preceded the people of God. And everybody was freaked out, including a lady named Rahab, who received these spies into her house and hid them. Because the king was like, came was like, hey, have you seen the spies? They're like, I have not seen the spies. I, she hid them in her roof and then sent them out a different way. And she did that because she believed that the God that was with them was the, the God of all of the universe and that that God was going to give them, the people of Israel, the, the fortified city of Jericho. She had faith in God. <laughs> and she tried to put herself in the favor of God by showing God's people favor. Should sound familiar with the illustration we looked at earlier. <laughs> Warmed and filled is something that they experienced, these, these messengers. And she sent them out another way. And uh, they made an agreement. They're like, if you put a scarlet thing in your window, uh, when we come, uh, we'll spare you. 
And she's like, but me and my whole family. And they're like, everybody who's in your house will be spared. Everybody outside of your house, free game. And they marched around the city, the walls fell down, and everybody was killed except for Rahab and everybody in her house. And do you know who was in her house? Everybody she knew. Her father, her mother, her brothers, and her sisters. She gathered her whole family. Her faith, her genuine faith, was able to bring everybody <laughs> in her relational circle in. Everyone around her was blessed by her faith. They were all terrified, but she had confidence because she had a promise and a God who said that everybody else is going to be judged, <laughs> but if you're here, you can be saved. Again, the commentary of Hebrews chapter 11 mentions her as well. Hebrews 11.31, by faith, uh, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. She believed, and her belief produced works of faith. Now, it wasn't separated by, you know, 38 years like Abraham's. It was separated by something of probably like a couple of days. Like God had just delivered the nation of Israel out of Egypt. That reputation was getting around. Hey, there's this God who's delivered this nation of slaves, there's no reason why they should be free, but here they are, free. <laughs> Their God is with them, and they're headed our way. <laughs> and she looked at that God and said, maybe there's grace there for me. And she found grace there. There was an act of faith that came shortly after the profession of faith. And those acts of faith save not only her, but her whole household. But would you consider with me for a moment how different these two illustrations are? You have a guy in the Bible who's known as the father of faith, and then you have a lady in the Bible who almost every time her name is mentioned, <laughs> the title that comes with it is not mother of faith. It's a harlot. You can almost not say that word in church. <laughs> right? Ladies, if you... Uh, when you were single and dating and you brought a man home, you're like, his, his moniker is father of faith. And you're like, dad's like, approved. My son's going out dating. Uh, yeah, her, her title, her reputation is a harlot. Not approved. <laughs> right? You have a man versus a woman, a, a Jew versus a Gentile, a father of faith and a harlot. Genuine faith that results in works of faith is for everyone. But there's one other way in which these two are similar. Uh, Matthew chapter 1 begins uh, with a genealogy of Jesus' birth. And these two names are in there. Rahab, having not died, <laughs> joined the nation of Israel. Uh, she married a man who had a son. His name was Boaz. If you know the book of Ruth, <laughs> that name is significant to you. Boaz eventually married a Moabitess named Ruth, and they were the grandparents of a king you may have heard of, David. So certainly Abraham is the father of faith, but in some ways, 
Rahab didn't escape great blessing either. She was included in the family of God, literally. <laughs> the genealogy, it's there to read. I'm not sure what your background is, where you're coming from. If you would uh, identify yourself as a father of the faith, or if the reputation you have is somewhat less wholesome. In the family of God, we're all welcome. The faith in God is not exclusive, except for that it should also produce works of faith. The two phrases that he uses again in conclusion, uh, verse 24 and 25, verse 24, a man is justified by works. And he's not saying before God. He's saying a man is justified to saying that he has genuine faith when there are works that correspond to it. Jesus said, uh, you will know them by their fruits. There, there are people that Jesus warned about, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, that were false prophets, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. And how can you tell if a wolf is in sheep's clothing? And how can you tell if somebody's a false prophet? And Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. What's coming out of the, their lives, the works that they're doing. Uh, a wolf can only pretend to be a sheep for so long when it's amongst other sheep. Eventually, its wolfiness will come out. Right? We will know. We, we can't see the root, but we can discern the fruit. And I'm not calling us here today to discern the fruit in one another's life. I'm calling us here today to discern the fruit in our own life. Pastor uh, Damien Kyle, uh, just listening to him on this passage, and he, he, he gave some good food for thought. He said, if you're here and you can tell me a time when you were eight years old and you made a profession of faith, but there has not been any fruit in your life, consider that. Consider that the theology you have may be sound, but that your heart still may be far from him. God gave us his son so that we would have life in it more abundantly. What that abundant life looks like, Jesus described uh, also, again, in the Sermon on the Mount. with relationship to him being the light of the world, he looks at us who are followers of him. He describes us this way, Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Hear his conclusion here. Let your light so shine before men that they may see, notice, your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. For a long time, that last phrase really confused me. I was like, Lord, how can, how can people see my good works and glorify you in heaven? Like, how's that work? I don't get it. How do, how do people see me doing work glorify you in heaven? And the answer is straightforwardly simple. In the same way, that when Jesus raised a dead man to life, uh, Lazarus, 
was raised to life by Jesus. Now imagine you're Lazarus, you're dead, and then you, you're raised to life by Jesus, and you're laying there. And the first thing that Jesus says to you is, get up. And then they, he tells others around him, loose him, because you know, he's all tied up. But if, if, if Jesus raised you to life, but you never moved, you're still alive, but there's no signs of life. The good works that God has created us for when we get saved, that we're to walk in, those flow out of us as signs of life. That as he's the light of the world, we are in part reflections of him in this world. And when people see us doing good works and they really did know us before <laughs> we came to Christ, they're like, I know him. Uh, he's not like that. Somebody's changed him. They're signs of life not only in the abilities that God gives us, uh, but in the life that he gives us. In the same way, when people saw Lazarus after he was raised from the dead, they're like, I remember he was dead. Like, I saw him when he was dead. <laughs> He's alive now. They didn't glorify Lazarus for the life. They glorified God. Remember the, the lame man uh, on the porch called Beautiful? Uh, Peter said, you know, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give unto thee. And he raises him up and he's, he's walking and he's leaping and he's praising Peter. No. <laughs> he's walking, he's leaping, and he's praising the Lord. God used Peter that day, but the Lord was the one being praised. When we walk out our obedience in this world, the world will look at us, and if they're seeing it correctly, praise the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That, that our lives can be a praise to the Lord because of the good work that Jesus accomplished on the cross for us, I'd be satisfied with just being saved. <laughs> God doesn't want us to be satisfied with just being saved. God wants your light to so shine this season, even today. And how that happens is walking out those good works. And the result of that is not glory to us, but to him. And he deserves all the glory and praise. We were just singing that this morning. Um, one of the signs to me that the Lord has been uh, in and amongst us as a fellowship is I have had uh, very little to no communication with uh, Teresa as she's picking out the songs. And yet all of the songs she always picks out are like, I would have picked those if I would have even known that song existed. <laughs> right? It's because the Lord cares for us. The Lord loves us. I'm going to invite the worship team back up to uh, lead us in a closing song. But would you consider with me this morning, where you are at in relationship to the Lord. Do you know that the Lord loves you? That he sent his son to die for your sins? That we don't earn a standing before God? That standing before God has already been earned by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We are saved because of the good work he's done. Our good works are possible because of the good work he's done. Just like Lazarus, the good works that he did after, only made possible by Jesus. Every dish that he washed for his wife, every time he made his bed, his wife didn't have to thank him anymore. <laughs> praise the Lord. <laughs> He's not dead. <laughs> right? We can praise the Lord every day for every little thing because of the life that he gives to us. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, what a joy it is to be a branch attached to the vine, that the life that is in you has become the life that is in us, and that life that is in us produces fruit. 
Lord, I pray that as we examine our own lives, Lord, that we would not be discouraged by seeing how we fall short, but that we would be encouraged by seeing how you love us, by seeing your life at work in and through us. Lord, we can praise you today, and we can glorify you today, not just with the words we say, but the life that we live, not because we made it possible, but because you made it possible. Lord, you saved us. You filled us with your spirit. Lord, you've prepared good works for each one that we should walk in them. Lord, I pray for everyone here, Lord, that those who know you would consider afresh the good works that you have called them to. Lord, that those who don't know you would not think it's by their good works that they can earn a right relationship with you or by some attaining of knowledge uh, be accepted by you. But Lord, that each one would become your friend by believing that you will do exactly what you said you would do, that you would save those who call upon you as Lord and Savior. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.